Well, we're continuing this week with a story that really began last week. The story of Jacob and his wives. And today, what we're seeing in this passage is kind of a soap opera. Kind of a drama. Anyone ever watch soap operas? I don't know. Who who watches soap operas anymore, right? Well, there's an exception, however. And that is that soap operas aren't very often filled with mercy and grace. And today we see mercy and grace from the Lord on display, kind of in a background way. So as we look at the passage in Genesis 30, I want to highlight three different things this morning. Number one, what should be already apparent to you, the depravity of sin. The depravity of sin is on great display today. Number two, God's care for the sinful. God's care for the sinful. And number three, God's grace and faithfulness bringing about a nation from this morass. God's faithfulness and grace bringing forth a nation out of this morass. So let's recap real quickly because the passage we picked up with today is a continuation, as I said. So you'll remember if you were here last week, and if you weren't, that's okay. Jacob, the trickster, was tricked into marrying Leah by Rachel and Leah's father, Laban. After agreeing to be Laban's servant for another seven years of labor, Laban allows Jacob to marry Rachel, the girl that he really wants. And from the beginning, we see that there's trouble in this marriage shouldn't be surprising given how it begins. In fact, Leah and Rachel are sister wives. As our preacher pointed out very ably last week, God saw how miserable Leah was. And Leah's place is truly pitiable. She's unloved by her husband. Scripture outright says this in Genesis 29 verse 30. Jacob doesn't love her. He loved Rachel more than Leah, it says. And on top of it, there was no love lost between Leah and her sister Rachel. So if you haven't already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. It's um, on page 2 in the order of service if you don't have your Bibles with you. the drama. When Rachel saw that she bore more Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So you see, while Jacob loves Rachel more Rachel sees herself as inferior because she can't bear her husband children. She can't fulfill that God-given purpose as a wife and a mother for him. Give me a child or I shall die, she says. It's rather absurd, actually, kind of an overdramatic statement. But jealousy and envy can derange people's minds along with desperation. 
And Rachel goes so far as to blame Jacob for her barrenness, which actually makes no sense when you think about it. I mean, if you read just prior to this, Jacob has fathered Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah with Leah to this point. But Jacob is right to rebuke Rachel here when he says, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob is pointing out that it's God who gives children. It's God who gives the miracle of life, not the father or the mother. And that draws our minds, along with the first hearers of this story, to God as the author of life. The point of this line is to make us ask, where is God at work in this continued mess of a family? Where is God at work in this continued mess of a family? Remember, this is the lineage of David. It's the lineage of Jesus. But rather than taking her husband's correction and admonition, in her envy and pride, just like Abraham's wife, Sarah, Rachel has a solution. She will give Jacob her maidservant, Bilhah. She'll give Jacob her maidservant, Bilhah. Look at verse 3 and 4. Then she said, Here is my servant, Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. I think it's worth noting here that Jacob goes along with Rachel's plan, great to his fault, despite knowing better. We know that he knows better because of his rebuke of Rachel, that it's God that gives children, and yet he goes ahead with this scheme. Remember, it's Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, who, according to Genesis 16:2, quote, obeys the voice of his wife and goes in and has sexual relations with Hagar, which creates a host of problems. While Rachel is driven by a sort of mad jealousy and competition with Leah, Jacob is equally sinful, being passive, abandoning his role as a husband, a father, and in this era, the priest of his family. His rebuke of Rachel is godly, but when it comes to the deed, when it comes to upholding what is right, he violates natural law, and he violates the God-given dignity and personhood of the maidservant Bilhah. Notice, Bilhah, like Hagar, has no choice in the matter. Then the tragic tale repeats itself. Leah, who seemingly has forgotten the lesson that she learned in last week's reading of God opening her womb, decides to use her, her servant, Zilpah, to add more children to herself out of a selfish competition. Look at verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. But wait, there's more. The competition of the unhappy sister-wives' marriage continues in verse 14. 
In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben, that's one of the sons, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Now, if you weren't aware, mandrakes are the Middle Eastern version of that little blue pill. Mandrakes are an aphrodisiac. Okay? And what's going on here is Leah is trading Rachel mandrakes so that she can continue in this competition, these birth wars. And it goes back and forth this way until Dinah and Joseph are born at the end of this passage. So it's a mess. It's a mess. There's all sorts of sinning going on here. What's the point of this? Is it just to display the degradation and and depravity of sin? Well, partially, yes. But there's more going on, isn't there? If you read between the lines, if you pay attention to some of the highlights in Scripture, you see that God's grace is at work. As a side note, have you ever heard the idea that the Old Testament doesn't approve of Man of marriage as being between one man and one woman. Sometimes you hear this argument, right? Well, there's polygamy in the Old Testament. If you ever hear that argument, point this passage out to those people making that argument. God does not approve of polygamy. He permits it, but he doesn't approve of it. Let's continue on to look at, where, at what continues to be a mess of depravity and sin. It's so hard to track what's going on here. Right? How many sins have been committed? Someone take a guess. A lot. Yes, Father. A safe, good answer. A lot. Yeah. Any, any number? Any, any amount? Guess of numbers? There's not a right answer here. I mean, I, I haven't... There's all sorts of sins being committed. But I count 11 just offhand. You could probably come up with more. Let's go through them really fast. Jacob's favoritism and neglect of his wife Leah. Rachel's envy of Leah. Rachel's impiousness in blaming Jacob for her lack of children. Rachel's mistrust in God's provision. Jacob's wrongful submission to Rachel's demands. Rachel's unnatural use of Bilhah as a surrogate mother. Jacob and Rachel's abuse of their power over Bilhah and Zilpah, Leah's jealousy of Rachel, Leah's unnatural use of Zilpah also as a surrogate mother, Jacob and Leah's abuse of power over Zilpah, and Leah's hiring of her husband's services for mandrakes. That's 11 that I can count. Favoritism and neglect, envy, impiousness, mistrust, wrongful submission, unnatural surrogacy, jealousy, power, abuse, 
and hiring are a type of prostitution, commoditization at least. So although this family, this family brings forth the 12 tribes of Israel and King David and Jesus himself, there's a great deal of living in the flesh here, isn't there? There's a great deal of living in sensuality, in passions in this passage. And compare that with the New Testament epistle of the Apostle Peter writing to the church. When we look at that, it's very clear that these people are not models of living out a holy life that's consistent with God's will. And yet, God still cares for them. God cares for the sinful. We know that the ultimate answer for this need is that salvation, in fact, does come into the world through the meritorious sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that there's mercy, as we prayed in our collect beginning today, there's mercy for God's people in all times. God cares for sinners. God is anything but passive in this story. Every conception of a child is a natural act of God, but in addition to this, despite their competition and the myriad of sins, God is miraculously acting in both Rachel and Leah's life. Notice, Scripture repeatedly says that God hears them and opens up their wombs. Verse 17, And the Lord, and the Lord God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob, a fifth son. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. God has mercy on Leah, the sinner, and Rachel, the sinner, and Jacob, the sinner. And Leah, at least, knows it. I'll sometimes hear Christians say, and maybe you've heard this too once in a while, well, it all worked out, or I guess that wasn't that bad since God didn't care that much, or I guess it's all okay, sin doesn't matter. While many of us don't outright say these things, we often think them, don't we? While many of, not many of us share the sins of Rachel and Leah in this context, we do share their sinfulness in envy and jealousy and hubris and pride, don't we? Do you really think that just because God shows his care for you and me with mercy that our sin doesn't matter? Or just because he miraculously allows something to work out for your favor that your disobedience is somehow being rewarded? Christian, don't be such a fool. Don't be such a fool. It is not that God is ignoring your sin and disobedience, but rather that he's being merciful to you and me despite our disobedience. His mercies are unnumbered. Yes, God gives us mercies despite our sin, not because he's indifferent, but because he's a caring father. And he has pity on Leah and Rachel and Bilhah and Zilpah and Jacob alike. Notice, the children of these maidservants become part of the people of Israel. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see a chart of the twelve sons who become the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Notice God's abundant mercy here. His faithfulness to build a nation despite this mess of a situation. It is from this morass that God builds the twelve tribes of Israel and the great nation that King David will one day be king of. I can't resist concluding this point with scholar Gordon Wenham's final commentary. He says, quote, Fathered by a lying trickster and mothered by sharp-tongued shrews, the patriarchs grew up to be less than perfect themselves. Yet through them, the promises of Abraham took a great step forward in fulfillment. What promise is that? The promise way back at the beginning of this series last year in Genesis 12, verse 1, where the Lord says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. But note, it's out of God's mercy and care, and no thanks to the soap opera drama of Jacob's household, that this nation comes to be. God brings about a people for himself, not because of their prowess or moral goodness, but because of his choice. And from one of these sons, from Judah, will come King David and the Lord Jesus himself. You can see that also on your chart. So what are we to take from this as Christians today? Well, let me begin by saying there's a lot. There's a plethora of sermons that could be preached on this, and I've limited myself to only a few points. First, looking at the depravity of sin in this story, we see the real tale of humanity without God. Friends, the lie is prevalent in our culture. Don't fall into the lie that human beings are basically good. I'll repeat that. Do not fall into the lie that human beings are basically good. That's nonsense. Mankind, yes, is created in God's image. Of course, that's true. But from Genesis 3 on, sin has infected to the deepest root of humanity, all of it, and it's multiplied from generation to generation. It's to be continually battled with by God and his people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and today. The bad news is sin is strong and multiplies quickly in our own individual lives and in society at large. The good news is that Jesus has defeated sin and his death on the cross out of love does not ignore or find sin irrelevant, but rather covers it with the multitude of his love. That's why Jesus tells, tells us in the Gospel passage today, Luke 13, that the faithful will see Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob of all people in the kingdom of God in Luke 13:28, God brought Jesus from the line of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob to save Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me say that again. God brought, God brought forth Jesus from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to save Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and you and me from sin. But also, in today's Gospel, Jesus doesn't mince words. Look at Luke 13 with me very quickly, and particularly verses 23 through 25. 
Luke 13, verses 23 through 25. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Those are words that should make you shudder. Human beings cannot excuse their own sin and think that everything's going to be okay in the end. There will be many who will be dismissed as workers of evil because of the depth of depravity of sin that's infected them. And because the door has closed before they have submitted themselves to Jesus Christ. But the good news is that God has made this way through Jesus Christ so that no one need to be cast out. Let that be our witness. Let us never aid or abet as Christians that false religion that unceasingly strives for goodness and truth without Christ. Let us also not aid and abet that false religion that throws the search for goodness and truth out the window, thinking that it has nothing to do with Christ. Both of these are falsehoods. The only door to the Father, the narrow way, is through Jesus Christ. And as Christians, let us rather continually repent and confess our sins and seek restoration so that we know it so well, that restoration and that forgiveness in our own lives, that we can encourage other people with it, and that we can spread the gospel with it. Do you know, friends, that spreading the gospel is that easy? It's as easy as telling people what Jesus has done for you, how he's done it, and that he can do it for them too. This will contrast with the false religion of pride of our day, the false religion of self-affirmation of our day, the false religion of indulgence and passion in the here and now, that search for passing comfort, which the ancients called hedonism, which pervades our day. As C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, in religion as in war and everything else, Comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. But if you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. And is that not what so many people struggle with today? Despair. How are we to do this as Christians? How are we to fight the fight and battle? Well, St. Peter tells us in the epistle today, chapter 4, and I'm just going to highlight a couple verses, verses 1 and 2. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, that is for battle, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Who, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And St. Peter then tells us how that's done in verse 7 through 11. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. What terrible strife and relational harm done in Jacob's family because Rachel and Leah indulge in their fleshly passions and in their jealousy and envy could have been avoided. What injustice that comes from the cowardice of Jacob because he doesn't choose the truth and the good of God's sovereignty over childbearing over his own comfort. The twelve patriarchs of Israel's twelve tribes might have arrived in a universal joy and in a nurturing family rather than one stricken with envy and strife. And if you know the rest of the story, that competition and envy and strife goes on, doesn't it? What happens with Joseph? What happens with these twelve sons? They certainly don't live in harmony. How about you? Let's bring this home. Where are the particular sins that we see in today's reading at work in your life? Eh, that's hard to ask and, and answer, honestly, isn't it? You probably are not having a baby war with your sister wife. It's probably not the story of any of us, I hope. But those sins, those sins which plague Rachel, Leah, and Jacob are still at war in us. Ask yourself, in what way are you causing strife in your own family, in your home? And be honest. Ask yourself, in what ways are you acting out of jealousy or an abuse of power? And be honest. In what ways are you keeping God at a distance out of your life? Whether it's in your family or at school or in your work. And saying, oh well, that's okay, well, I'm just going to do this on the side, God, God will ignore it. Be honest. Has your lack of submission to God's will and your cowardice hurt people around you? Be honest. We all struggle with these things, friends. You're not alone. Where do you see the sins of Leah, Rachel, and Jacob in your own life? Maybe at home, maybe at work, maybe at school. And don't start labeling others. That's too easy. I bid you, face the uncomfortable. Think on it a little this week after the sermon ends and ask the Holy Spirit to highlight it for you. Then, repent of it and confess it and receive Jesus' forgiveness, which was bought at a very costly price to the Father. Push into God's grace and comfort and see His mercies and see His love for you that covers the multitude of sins. And be truly comforted if he can change the disaster of Jacob's family around, he can change whatever disaster you're in around too. Do you believe that? He can. And he will. He will bring good from it if you bring it to him and let it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up to you our hearts and our lives. 
And we ask, Lord, that you would pour out your mercies upon us. For we don't deserve them, but we receive them knowing that you're our loving Father and that you care for sinners. Help us to be witnesses to that truth and to help others along the way that they, they too may enter the narrow way into the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.